Father, would you soften our hearts and our minds so that we might understand what it is that you're saying to us through this this stark chapter? But more than that, with your help, would we would we live it as we grasp more of you and what it means to be one of yours? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please come on a trip with me to Turkey? But we're back in AD 144, and I want to introduce you to a bishop called Marcion. You may have heard of him. He's famous for not great reasons. His argument, his heresy, which has made him famous, was that was that as you read the Bible, as you read the Old Testament particularly, you see there a God who is angry and scary and distant and removed. But as you get through to the New Testament, well, there we have the God of Jesus, the God who is patient and kind and loving and gracious. And I suspect it's, it's a heresy. It's something that people believe today. In the church today, maybe even in us, we we wrestle with these passages of God, his hatred of sin. The thing with Marcion is he couldn't square the two. And so he rejected the wrathful Hebrew God of the old. He said he was a tyrant, a separate and lower entity than the all-forgiving God of the New Testament. I wonder whether that does resonate with you. Particularly as we've wandered with Elijah these last few weeks, the bloodshed, the death, the judgment, the fire. It's hard. We can struggle with it. I think fundamentally, in part at least, it comes down to our, our grasp or our lack of a grasp of who our good, just God is. It comes as well in part because of our, our lack of a grasp of our fundamental rebellion and our nature against him. If you are a regular at Magdalen Road, you might remember a, a, a series we did back in January and February. We were thinking about sin. It was a happy series. We were thinking about different ways, different models, different metaphors that the Bible uses of, of sin. Why would we do that? Because we want to understand the depths of our sin, the breadth of our sin, so we understand again the glory of the cross. We see afresh the power and the beauty, the kindness of the Lord, his incredible love for us. But what struck me as I chatted to you and conversations that went on around the series was that the model of sin that we, we perhaps lose sight of or that doesn't resonate so often with us but we were captivated and challenged by was that idea of marriage and adultery. Do you remember that? The Bible describes that God, God relates to us as if he's relating to his wife. Sin is not simply cold and mechanical, a doctrinal tick box, but it's profoundly relational. Our sin, we said, was like adultery as, as we jump into bed with other gods. Gods that promise us life and we believe them. And the passages that we looked at were, were striking and stark, and they helped us feel something of that pain, of that relational anguish that the Lord feels 
as his people walk out on him. And you see, I think that matters. I think it matters because if rebellion is just about breaking rules or missing the mark, then we could say to God, well, we had a go. Does it not matter that much? Really? Can you not just let it go? And we begin to think maybe the God of the old is a tyrant. But if his people are his brides, and he has loved them and lavished his kindness upon them, if he's rescued and protected and given them a land and blessed them incredibly, then maybe we begin to get something again of the glimpse of why these things matter, why his people's rebellion matters so much, why as they turn their backs on him, it's like adultery, and we, we start to feel something of that. We don't just know it in our heads, but it's there in our hearts. And so do you remember the story so far with Elijah? I don't have to do much of a recap because of Alex's kid slot, which was brilliant. But our series has been during the time of Ahab. It was a prosperous time, a secure time, a successful time for the people. He was a king for quite a while. But it's been a time of complete and utter abject spiritual poverty. The heights of God's people in the land under Solomon ended at the start of 1 Kings. And then from chapter 11, we've had the downward spiral again and again, pretty much in free fall. Bad king after bad king, after moderate king after bad king. And what do we mean by bad kings? We mean instead of ruling from the humble standpoint of one who sits under God's words, the kings have pursued other gods. They've jumped into bed with other gods. They've led the people into jumping into bed with other gods. And Ahab has been the very bottom, as bad as it gets. But again and again, we have seen that our God pursues and seeks to woo his people. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their spiritual adultery, he has been faithful. And they've stopped listening, but he's not stopped talking. And so, in this second book of Kings, chapter 1, Ahab finally has been dispatched. As was promised, judgment was delayed, but he was still removed. And that sounds like great news. It's time for a new beginning, a new start. Surely the downward spiral is leveling out and we're about to go up again. This is as low as it gets. Not really. Because Ahaziah is not quite as bad as his dad, but he's not much better. Have a look down with me at the chapter. And you can see the central message, the drumbeat that resounds again and again and again, because three times it is repeated for us. So verse, firstly in verse 3 and 4, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. Secondly, verse 6, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending messages to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, you... Won't leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. Strike two. Strike three, verse 16. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult? That you have sent messengers to consult Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. Because you've done this, you will never leave the bed you're lying on, you will certainly die. Do you see, it's a chapter about a king stuck in his deathbed, who rather than consulting the god of life to see what will happen to him, he consults Baal, or at least a member of the Baal family. And when the writer, when God repeats himself for us like this, 
bangs it home. It's his way of underlining and highlighting and emphasizing, making sure we don't miss what it's all about. Making sure we learn the lessons of history. And so as we work our way through this very stark passage, I want us to see that the characteristics of our God. But I want to warn you that it is very un-PC. At least, at least to our Western ears. At least to ears that believe the big cultural narratives of our time and dominate how we think. So some might say that God here is intolerant. He is exclusive. He's not just concerned with people being true to themselves and expressing themselves and expressing how they want to, to live. No, no, by his actions in history, we see what he is like. We see the reality of our God. And it might shock us. So what do we learn of God? First thing we learn, God detests. We don't know how it happened. We don't know what went on beforehand, but King Ahaziah has had a fall in verse 2. He's fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria, and he has injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult the Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, just to see if I will recover from this injury. He is the powerful king of the northern kingdom, but he is potentially on his deathbed. He is on his last legs. It is the end of the line, and it is crunch time for Ahaziah. Time to make the call. Where do his loyalties lie? What's he going to do? Well, his loyalties do not lie with the Lord. He goes for Baal. It's true even today we live in a sanitized life. We don't much like talking about death. It's not an ideal conversation starter at the school gates. I've not tried it, but I can't imagine it would go well. We don't like to think about death or suffering or pain, but often when everything is stripped away, when all the pomp and the ceremony and putting on an act is removed and people are faced with their mortality... We often do see who people really are. When the rug is pulled out in life, you begin to see what people actually care about, where their allegiances really lie. C.S. Lewis, um, The Problem of Pain, famously wrote, he said, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But Ahaziah does not hear. And so he sends messengers to Baal to find out what will happen. And so God sends Elijah to confront him. We've seen it before, but notice again that in simply sending Elijah, that is an act of grace. Let me tell you why. We saw it briefly last time as, as they so amazingly acted this morning. Ahab's repentance delayed the Lord's judgment. And it's complicated and nuanced, but let me just give you a moment on this. 
It seems to me as you read prophecy in the Old Testament, it works in different ways. It's more flexible, it's more varied than we sometimes give it credit for. So sometimes when God speaks and he judges, it is what might be rather than what will be. Sometimes what he says is inevitable, but sometimes what he says, there seem to be unspoken conditions for his word to come to pass. We've mentioned it already with Ahab. But let me just give you another example, a well-known example that you might be familiar with. It's from Jonah. We'll be doing Jonah in our weekend away. Nudge, nudge. Please do sign up. Jonah. But you remember, as Jonah enters Nineveh, he says, do you remember he says, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What happens? They repent in sackcloth and ashes, and it's not overthrown. And so sometimes as the Lord speaks, as he prophesies, as he, as he threatens through his prophets, it's at ground level to elicit a response from his people, even his enemies, to bring them to repentance, to make them change. And we've seen it week by week as Elijah has confronted Ahab. Well, so here, he could have just left King Ahaziah to it. He could have just walked away. But in sending Elijah, in passing on the messengers, there is an implicit warning. Ahaziah, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why are you consulting other gods? And just as his father Ahab had chance after chance after chance just as God did not relent in pursuing his kings. So here there is that implicit question. What are you doing? Turn back to me. Our God is very kind. He, he invades our avenues of idolatry with reminders of himself. Have you ever considered that? He, he keeps going, doesn't he? Do you know that in your life? He seeks to challenge us and to shake us and to unsettle us and to wake us up. To show us how stupid and foolish our idolatry is. How much more satisfying he is. To urge us afresh to love and pursue and delight in and treasure him as the only one who can satisfy us. The one who who gives the gifts and not the gifts themselves. So God detests our sin but seeks to wake us up from it. And so he sends Elijah to confront Ahaziah. Secondly, God defends, verse 9 to 12. Have a glance down at those verses for a moment. I think this is, this is probably the shocking scene in the chapter for many of us. I think to try and grasp what is going on in these verses, we must ask a simple question, and that is, why was King Ahaziah sending a military envoy of 50 soldiers and one captain to go speak to one prophet? You see, verse 5, messengers had already spoken to Elijah. It's not as if there's not a communication channel. Why is he sending... 50 soldiers to him. I think it's his royal military muscle. The 50 men were 
were not going to be a guard of honor for him. They're there to summon him and to silence him. That seems pretty clear in verse 15 where Elijah needs to be told, don't fear the king. And so why are they military men going? It's to shut him up. Maybe to do away with him. And so verse 9, they approach him. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and he said, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I'm a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. And then it happens again. God defends his own. Elijah is his mouthpiece. He is miraculously guarded, protected. Leave my prophet alone, Ahaziah. So there's protection, but why? Why fire from the sky? It's not a common thing in scripture. But do you remember where else we've had it so far in this series? Can you hear the echoes of Carmel? Remember 1 Kings 18, the battle of the gods, one corner, Baal, unable to, to sacrifice, to light the sacrifice, to do anything despite the fervency of the prophets, cutting themselves and stomping and everything. And then God simply revealing who he is, that he is able. And so what's the function of the fire? Well, in one sense, it's protecting Elijah. In another, it's revelatory. It's deliberately a reference to Carmel. Proof as to who the true God is. King, King Ahaziah should have known it. Should have heard from his dad. But what do you do when, when publicly the king does not listen? When he does not learn? And so God says, join the dots, Ahaziah. Do you remember Carmel? Do you remember the fire? Do you remember who I am? Do you remember what Baal did for your father? Why are you asking him and not me? Why do you consult the God of death and not the God of life? God defends his prophets. And I take it God will finally defend his people. He won't necessarily protect them from death as he did with Elijah here. But he will protect them through death. He will bring them to himself forever. We can trust him with our death. I read an extraordinary article recently. I don't know if you saw it in the, in the press. It was the account of nine men in Indonesia. They were facing a firing squad, the death penalty. They'd had 10 years in prison, a decade in prison beforehand. And during that time, they had heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They had trusted him for themselves. And the account told of how as they gathered and they looked into the eyes of the firing squad of their executioners, they sang hymns together. And they prayed for each other. And they, they sang, bless the Lord, O my soul. Ten thousand reasons that we will sing after the sermon. God didn't defend them from death. But with the humble confidence that they had in trusting Christ for themselves, we can be sure he, he defended them in death, through death. Two groups of 50 soldiers. Two captains have approached Elijah, and to their detriment, God has defended his own. For the third captain, we see the pattern changes 
verse 13 to 15, God deflates, that is, he humbles people before him. Do you see, the third captain here is someone who has learnt, or maybe he's even a part of the remnant of believers. He certainly talks differently. Do you see how he approaches Elijah? Completely different from the first two. There's humility here. He he went up, fell on his knees. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him and don't be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Maybe this third captain, maybe he's, he is the example for adulterous Israel of how to approach their God, who is justly, rightly angry with them for their rebellion. He's humble. He's fearful. I don't know how you relate to God, the God of the Bible, whether you would say that you fear him. Is that a word that you would use? How does that fear of him manifest itself each day? Does it change anything as you fear him? Does it change how you talk? Does it change your actions? Does it change what you do, what you, what you don't do? I think from talking to people, fear is something that easily, in terms of contemporary faith, we lose. But I think fear ought to fuel our humility before him. I think it ought to change things. A previous boss of mine used to talk of the dangers of simply thinking of God as, as almighty and not almighty. I think there's something in that. We're not equals with him. The third captain seems to have learnt that. Seems to have got something of what reverence means, of the power of God. And we forget that lesson at our peril. Amazing accounts. Um, I read this week of the ministry of George Whitfield that illustrates something of this episode. It's incredible. He was visiting the parish of a pastor called William Grimshaw in Yorkshire. It's from 1756. It's August the 8th. Mr. George Whitfield mounted a temporary scaffold outside the church to address the thousands spread before him. And with a solemnity peculiarly his own, he announced his text, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. After a short pause as he was about to proceed, a wild, terrifying shriek issued from the centre of the congregation. Mr Grimshaw hurried to the spot and in a few minutes was seen pressing through the crowd towards the place where Mr Whitfield stood at the front. Brother Whitfield, he said, you stand amongst the dead and the dying. An immortal soul has been called into eternity. Cry aloud and spare not. After a lapse of a few moments, Mr Whitfield again announced his text. And again, a loud and piercing shriek, proceeding from the spot where Lady Huntingdon and Lady Margaret Ingham were standing. A thrill of horror seemed to spread itself over the multitude when it was understood that a second person had fallen victim. All was hushed, 
Not a sound was to be heard, and a stillness like the awful stillness of death spread itself over the assembly as he proceeded to warn the Christless sinner to flee from the wrath to come. It's not something we do very often in our culture, our church culture, but I want to urge you, if you haven't already, then to trust Christ for yourself today. It's a matter of urgency. One day we will all face him. And so today, deflate yourself before him. Humbly bow the knee. Fear him, but, but then trust him and receive him and rejoice in him and delight in him and love him. Today. So God detests Ahaziah's sin. He defends Elijah. He deflates the third captain. Now finally, in the final section, which we may find clinical, God delivers his judgment. God's word is powerful and it cuts both ways. He's powerful to fulfill his promises and he's powerful to fulfill his threats. And so verse 17, he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Israel? And it's game over. He ends and that's it. It's a remarkable account. I have to say and be honest, as I was preparing this, uh, I hadn't done much thinking about Ahaziah. Nothing more than a cursory read. I don't know if you've had many sermons on him. This was definitely my first. But you know, I think the thing that will stick with me personally is that aside from verse 1, a passing mention of Moab's rebellion, we know nothing about his life. All we know is how he died, the account of his death. It's haunting. There's, there's no facts about him or his life. There's no facts about the details of his reign. It's simply that he badly injured himself, falling through the lattice of his upper room, and he was one who consulted Baal rather than God. All we know is how he died. And why is that all we hear? Because there's not a story about him. It's about God. It reveals the characteristics of our God. This is not just a random outlier passage, an abnormal account, but the truths about God's character that we learn in 2 Kings 1, however unpalatable they might feel to us, however obscure the situation and the occasion, however distant they feel from us and our context, are completely consistent with what we read in the Bible of him. Not just in the Old Testament, as Marcion noted, but the new as well. And often when people say, I don't like the tyrannical God of the Old Testament, maybe that's you here this morning, in my mind the question to ask is, what is the cross about? Why do we need the cross? Why did Jesus have to come and to go to the cross? Because surely... At the cross, we see so very clearly our four D's 
God detests and defends and deflates and delivers. We see them converging in one place, like like lightning at one point. At the cross, we see that God detests our sin and idolatry and unfaithfulness and spiritual adultery more than perhaps we thought. Because he is truly just, Jesus really experiences all of God's anger against all of his people's sin. At the cross we see that he detests, but there we see he delivers real judgments. Ahaziah's experience at the end of the chapter was nothing compared to Jesus. Do you know, as one of his, God was very angry with your sin. But it was 2,000 years ago, outside the walls of Jerusalem, as Jesus, as God the Son, takes God's, the Father's anger upon himself. There we see how just God is. There we see that he detests sin and he delivers judgment. But there we see too that he loves and he pursues his people. As Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is the answer? The answer is because I love my people. Because I need to forgive my people. And so where does that leave us? It leaves us firstly in an amazing way as, as being one of his, as being one whom he defends, part of his family, chosen, loved, valued, being a child of our father. Elijah, for this time, was defended from death. He won't be next week. At least he'll be taken to be with the Lord next week. The Lord preserves him and protects him. Because of the cross, we can trust the Lord with our death. He will preserve and protect us. And secondly, and finally, in our final D, in another sense, as we stand before the beautiful cross, we're those who are rightly deflated, humbled, Our pride, our egos are popped. As we approach this kind of God, so the third captain is our model, our example. And so much of the time, I don't know about you, but speaking for myself, month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, I can proudly sleepwalk through life and think it's about me. And what can I get out of it? And everything is turned on, in on me and we forget about him and that this world is about his glory and my life is about his glory. But then sometimes when we come up against passages like this or series like this, we see afresh what he is like and what we are like and what we deserve and we contemplate the cross, well there we see how much he loves us. And we don't deserve it and we could never deserve it. But as we stand there, our pride is gone and we are humbled. We're deflated. I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon have the final word before we sing again. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, When you hear the shout, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And if you do not lie prostrate on the ground before that cross, you have never seen it. If you're not humbled in the presence of Jesus, you do not know him. 
You were so lost that nothing could save you but the sacrifice of God's only begotten. Think of that. And as Jesus stooped for you, bow yourself in loneliness at his feet. A sense of Christ's amazing love to us has a greater tendency to humble us than even a consciousness of our own guilt. May the Lord bring us in contemplation to Calvary. Then our position will no longer be that of the pompous man of pride, but we shall take the humble place, the humble place of one who loves much because much has been forgiven. Our Father in heaven, we confess before you that as we come face to face with you again, recognizing how much you detest sin, how much you deliver upon your judgments, we confess that we are a people who are unclean, and yet yet we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that You are the one who will defend your people. That as you call us to be one of yours, you will see us in and through death. And we ask that we might be those who fear you such that our pride is popped. Lord, you know where pride rears its head in our lives. We're different people. It will be different places. But as we stand before you, please... Might we have a fresh glimpse of your majesty and your goodness and your glory and your kindness. Thank you for the cross. In your son's name we pray. Amen.